Welcome to Capital Considerations. This is Tony Roth, Chief Investment Officer at Wilmington Trust. We have a great episode today and perhaps our most important episode of the year because we're going to deliver, along with my colleagues, our forecast for 2023, our annual capital market forecast. I'm joined today by our Chief Economist, Luke Tilley, our Head of Investment Strategy, Megan Shu, and Senior Economist, Rhea Thomas. And we're going to talk today about the inflationary vortex, uh, which is the title of our capital market forecast for 2023, the inflationary vortex that we're all living, that we're all experiencing, that has beset not only our economy, but the world. And we're going to talk about three particular dimensions of the world that are, in our opinion, going to be critical in understanding the trajectory of inflation going forward. So when we think about what caused inflation, clearly there were two very powerful forces. Um, One was stimulus that came in during the pandemic, fiscal stimulus of record amounts, over $4 trillion spent um, in order to, if you will, rescue the economy during the pandemic, coupled with monetary stimulus, which created significant financial asset inflation, very loose monetary conditions, all from the form of zero Fed funds rates, zero to 25 basis point Fed fund rates for a period of time. And they were coupled with the problems that we experienced on the supply chain side with China locking down and then ultimately the war in Ukraine and Russia that has caused um, all kinds of havoc in the hydrocarbon supply chain. But when we think about where inflation is going going forward, what we have to think about very specifically in a context where the stimulus is gone, the fiscal stimulus is gone, the monetary stimulus with Fed funds now at, I believe, four and a quarter percent approximately. And we do have some continued supply chain problems, but certainly less than we did. There are really three very distinctive forces in our view that are going to define the future for inflation. The first is labor. There's been some very dramatic changes to the labor market that um, actually started before the pandemic to some degree, but were really accelerated by the pandemic, uh, which has caused wages to be inflationary. And we think that is a trend that's going to be hard to mitigate going forward. Secondly is China. There are some very profound socioeconomic developments that are happening in China that dovetail with some more immediate problems that China has around exiting zero COVID. And those will come together to create a very different contribution from China around inflation. And the last is energy. We have a Big problem on our hands and on this planet, we've got to get away from hydrocarbons, but we're very concerned that the move away from hydrocarbons will not happen in a way that is smooth. And that, what we call tenuous transition, is likely to result in some pretty significant input inflation as it relates to, to energy across the entire economy and the entire world. And Luke, I think the place to start is very specifically with the outlook for next year. We have for some time been focused on the idea of a soft landing and that we thought that because the consumer is so strong, the labor market is so strong, the Fed would be able to sort of arrest this inflation to a large degree without putting us into a recession. Now, we've recently changed our view. We still think that that soft landing is very possible, but that the most likely scenario now is probably a, a, a modest recession next year. Can you talk to us about how the current path of inflation is likely to bring us to that result? And what would you look for as we move forward in coming months to 
tell us which way it's going to break between a, a soft landing and a recession. Yeah, Tony, I think it's um, it really keys in on the things that you mentioned at the beginning, sort of the inflation that got us here is not the same kind of things that we're watching going forward because we have seen, continue to see, really encouraging price uh, decelerations and even price declines in a lot of the goods that were driven up by the stimulus. So a lot of the things that we uh, sort of as a nation, as a world bought during the pandemic, like computers and sports equipment, iPads, phones, uh, those have started to come down in price. uh, And that has been encouraging. But the challenges going forward are very much about those things that you listed and that we're looking at as we go forward in 2023, like energy, definitely labor, uh, and also the cost of of internationally produced goods. So uh, when we bring it together, we have been encouraged by those declines in goods prices. But when we look at labor, the challenges there and wages and just what an important part that is for the services, uh, that's where we see the risk of inflation staying higher than the Fed is comfortable with, and them needing to uh, press on the brake pedal hard enough that they feel comfortable that inflation won't get entrenched. And that just continues to raise the risk of of recession, because that's really what they want to guard against is this going on for years. Uh, So they're willing to cause that recession uh, if needed. And uh, we just haven't seen the slowdown in in services prices yet. So... um at the outset of the of the conversation today, I looked up and I saw you and Rhea, and I said, "Wow, I'm really outmatched two economists here." Um, but now that I feel I feel very happy. I've got, we've got two economists because we really have to go deep on this. So, Rhea, when we think about this problem around labor and the fact that we talk about this thing called the participation rate, which basically means what percentage of the people in this country either have a job or want to work, and that absolute number in that percentage. Um, is really a lot lower than we want it to be. It's a lot lower than it was before the pandemic. And it's that, from a supply-demand standpoint, that lack of supply for workers, which is causing wages to go up. And Luke talks about, what was the word you used, Luke? Uh, wages being persistent or being um, in, um, entrenched? Yeah. What was well, the word you used? In- inflation becoming entrenched. Right. So maybe it is already. Maybe wages are already um, stuck, if you will, in this upward spiral. Let's start, Rhea, with understanding why is it that we don't have enough workers? Sure. As you mentioned, uh, a lot of this uh, elevated wage pressure is being caused by labor force tightness. Um, And that refers to the fact that businesses really can't find enough workers uh, to hire. Essentially, the, the demand for labor is too high and the supply of labor is too low. The Fed can help ease that imbalance by raising rates to lower demand, but its tools are really not effective in addressing the supply issues. And in our view, there are two key drivers of that low labor supply. One of them, as you mentioned, is that low labor force participation rate, which is roughly a percentage point lower than where it was pre-pandemic right now. Um, And as a result, we have fewer available workers. And the second factor that we think is driving some of that low labor supply is the fact that we have less engaged workers, and that results in fewer productive hours worked. Okay, so 1% doesn't sound like a lot, but 1% of 300 million people is 3 million people. That that actually, on the margin, makes quite a difference in how much companies have to pay in order to get, whether they're productive or unproductive, (laughs) whether to get people at least warm bodies in the chairs, right? That's exactly right. Um, As you mentioned, our estimate of the shortfall in labor supply relative to pre-pandemic trends is about 3 million workers. 
We think the largest driver of that is accelerated retirements, accounting for over a third of those of, of that shortage. Uh, and we do estimate that those workers are probably less likely to return. Many of them left the labor force because of the elevated uh, health risks. And then they also uh, may have left because they're household balance sheets were uh, benefiting in the wake of the pandemic with the stronger housing market as well as elevated equity markets. Okay, so what's the other roughly two-thirds? The other important driver in our view uh, is coming from slower population growth, and that's largely driven by immigration. And that is going to be driven by policy going forward. If you look at immigration, actually, even in the run-up to the pandemic, we'd already seen a slowing pace. Uh, we had about 1.1 million uh, immigrants coming into the workforce on average in the prior 10 years to the pandemic. That's per year. Per year. But that collapsed to about 350,000 in 2020 and 2021. Now, that's expected to recover gradually over time in the next 30 years, but only to a pace that's about 17% lower than where it was pre-pandemic. So that is going to contribute a major shortfall uh, in our labor force going forward. I want to just take a moment also to talk about this other phenomenon. It seems like it's sort of a two-sided dynamic, right, which is this quiet quitters, the change in attitude towards work. Because on the one hand, it means that we're less productive. But on the other hand, to me, it almost provides some level of reassurance that as we move forward, maybe there is some potential for the economy to get more productive because we've lost some productivity with these, uh, with these poor attitudes, these slackers. But over time, as the balance changes and companies are able to exert more leverage over workers, there's some real latent p potential to come back out um, and sort of reverse what we're losing now, perhaps. So anyway, what do you think about this whole productivity and this, you know, these these errant attitudes that we see? Sure, that's a that's a great point, Tony. Um, and. You know, recent polls suggest that about 50% of the workforce uh, is accounted for by quiet quitters, those that are sort of neither actively engaged nor actively disengaged. But as you say, over time, if those workers become re-engaged, that could give us some sort of low-hanging fruit to take advantage of in terms of increased productivity. And if you look at the recent polls, they also suggest that about 65% of workers believe that they could get a job with higher pay. So as the dynamics of the labor market change, if we do move towards that mild recession scenario, worker bargaining power may start to erode, and that, that could lead to workers maybe deciding that they need to get engaged in order to keep their jobs. That would be good. What I think is really important, too, to understand is, as we transition to the second theme, which is China's socioeconomic evolution, is the common denominator of labor, right? The labor market is labor. The situation in China all has to do with labor as well, right, Megan? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Tony. Um, I, I think what's so interesting is as we look over the past two decades, China's influence, in large part because of its growing labor base, has been such an important disinflationary force on the global economy. And if you look between 2001 and today, in 2001, China was accepted into the World Trade Organization. That was really a pivotal point when China really became much more integrated into the global economy, the global supply chain. Since then, China's economy has grown 13 times, and it's uh, manufacturing labor base has doubled to 25 million people. So as we look going forward, you know, between the last 20 years 
and the next 20 years, we think that there's a real shift. And that has, in our view, come about around uh, the ascension of President Xi to president uh, of China and the really the, the change in the dynamics from wanting China to be such a, a global player and a globally integrated player in the supply chain, um, willing to be manufacturer to the world, to really wanting to be a leader in different parts of the economy and what that means for policies going forward. They were a leader, they are still today a leader in manufacturing. I mean, all of Apple's iPhones are made in China for the most part. They're the most sophisticated pieces of electronics probably ever produced. So what is this leadership that they're looking for and why is it happening now? Well, over the past 20 or so years, China's leadership has really been in the manufacturing space. Um, and the way I would think about it is, is executing on the, the designs of other firms, many of them U.S. Uh, domiciled. But going forward, China does not want to be um, just the manufacturer. They want to be the designer and the leader and the innovator in the next wave of technology, whether that's uh, green tech, artificial intelligence, um, and really setting themselves apart to not only execute on other you know, companies or countries' uh, designs, but to really be a leader and an innovator in those spaces. And what that will do is that will, if successful, help to elevate not only China's place geopolitically, which is a bit of a separate conversation, but also economically elevating the middle class, um, raising wages, and creating a, a more stable economy, which is really, um, I think, China's end goal. Well, it really resonates because it has clear echoes of the evolution of our country, as well as many others, where if you think back to the post-war era, in the 50s, we were very manufacturing dominant and manufacturing based. And by switching those jobs over to service jobs, using this paradigm from manufacturing to design, let's say, but much more broadly, to a service economy, those service jobs are more sophisticated, more highly compensated roles. And so now China is at that stage where their middle class wants more than what comes with manufacturing. And they're looking for these higher quality jobs. Their educational systems have moved along um, in kind, and they're, they're seeking to really make this shift. How easy will it be for them to do this? In other words, if they're going to take these manufacturing jobs offline, they're going to have to replace them with other more attractive jobs. And I sort of see this deglobalization as a certain threat at the same time to Chinese leadership. Um, globally, um, not just from a moral standpoint, but also from an economic standpoint. It seems like it's going to be harder for them to sort of garner, whether it's legal or illegal appropriation and learning, or, or whether it's stealing intellectual property. But it feels like as they disengage, it may be harder for them to create this society that's not based on manufacturing. Do you think it's going to be easy? Um, I, I don't think it will be easy. Um, and really, essentially, what China is trying to do is escape the what they call the middle income trap. So they've already made great progress, really, from moving from an agricultural economy to a manufacturing economy. But taking that next step is more challenging. Um, there, there's a policy that they're trying to engage in what they're calling dual circulation. So it essentially means keeping one foot in both sides of the of the door, if you will. So maintaining an export 
leadership role in the global economy while also trying to shift towards consumptions and services, which again, does elevate living standards and wages, and importantly, reduces some of the cyclicality of China's economy, which is a services consumption-led economy tends to be more stable, more insular. It's one of the benefits that we have in the United States. But it is a challenging proposal, if you will. And I think what makes it harder is that when other countries have successfully done this, it's been in a little bit more of an open globalization type of approach. And now going forward with technology-related tensions as high as they are, um, and you know, many countries who are, are leaders in the space really raising the walls, if you will, to protect their intellectual property and not share that, I think that makes it harder um, for China to make that leap towards being uh, an innovator in these very, very high-end parts of the technology space. So this whole organic path that China's on is really one that starts to redirect this idea that they're an unlimited source of cheap labor. And I use that word organic intentionally to offset it against the idea that we're not even even getting into the potential for inorganic interruption, which could be more geopolitical stress over Taiwan and so forth, even just starting to have real stress in the in the Taiwan Strait where so much of the global trade passes could potentially cause significant increases in costs for supply chain as it redirects activity away from that part of the world. That's right. I think at the most benign, uh, the tensions around Taiwan and technology leadership more more broadly are going to re- lead to duplicated supply chains, uh, difficulty in innovation. But there is a significant risk as it relates to uh, semiconductors and, and the chips space. Almost all of the artificial intelligence chips used by the Chinese military were designed by U.S. firms, which I think helps to explain why in a very, very fractured uh, U.S. political environment, this is one of those issues that gets a lot of uniquely bipartisan support for being um, really tough and, and thoughtful around what we're sharing with China. China and the U.S. are both hugely reliant on Taiwan for manufacturing anywhere from 70 to 90 percent of the chips that uh, both countries use. And then on top of that, you have quite a bit of uh, trade that's flowing through the Taiwan Strait and the South China Sea. So you could see how a scenario, not necessarily a near-term prediction, but one that's out there that we have to think about, um, could really reinvigorate the supply chain disruptions that we saw during COVID. So let's get to our third theme, which is energy's tenuous transition. We really sort of wrestled with the right word to characterize this big shift in energy. We came up with this word tenuous. What does that mean? Why do we have this word tenuous in there, Luke? What does it denote? Yeah, this is um, this is one of those real big challenges going forward. And in the CMF, we, we liken this to the passing of a baton from one runner to another on a track. Because as you said at the start, we've got this energy issue and the world's uh, need and desire to move away from hydrocarbons, fossil fuels, and pass that baton to the renewable energy sector. And it's a, it's a very challenging thing to do. And the reason that we say tenuous is we expect there to be challenges. And what we've seen Global governments, uh, policies have pointed more and more uh, that it was going to move this direction is that oil companies, the large oil majors, 
have reacted as you would expect they would. These are companies that have to lay out billions of dollars of CapEx just to find and prove the existence of oil reserves, and then it takes several more years and, and even more money to develop them, even before getting them out of the ground. And if you see on the horizon challenges to that, uh, then the rational thing to do is to cut back. And what we've seen is a, uh, a, a decline in that kind of CapEx. Uh, so we show that there's been a about 50% decline in CapEx by the oil majors starting in 2013 all the way through 2021. Uh, and essentially that the first part of that tenuous transition are the challenges that go along with this lack of CapEx, the long pendulum swing that's going to come from that. And after pretty consistently over years, seeing the large oil majors increase their total amount of proven reserves that they have to tap, uh, that's sort of flatlined at the tail end of that time frame. You get to 2018 to 2021, and, and the level of proven reserves has, uh, like I said, flatlined. And it's really hard to restart that. It really is a, a long uh, horizon thing, that continuous capex that has now fallen. At this point, all of the major constituents across the political spectrum here in the United States believe that climate change is man-made and that it, carbon dioxide is you know, really the primary offender within that. And we have the cost curve right now for solar is below natural gas. The cost curve for wind is below natural gas. So why do we want any more hydrocarbons? Yeah. None of us here are arguing against the, the value or sort of, you know, the normative question of whether this should or should not be done. That's why we labeled it the tenuous transition. The transition to that new world is very challenging. And as you said at the top, what we're thinking mostly about is inflation. So uh, we're looking at the uh, forecast from the International Energy Agency, uh, and we see a lot of that transition that you're talking about. The share of energy provided by renewables was just 12% in 2021. This is globally. This is globally, yeah. Right. So the share of renewables, um, uh, energy uh, production, 12% in 2021, and then it rises steadily. Uh, in 2030, it rises up to 17%, and then in 2050, all the way up to 29%. So it goes from being essentially a tenth of energy supply all the way up to a third over the course of the next 30 years. However- Why so slow? <laughs> It takes a long time. It takes a long time to build all of this kind of stuff out. The technology, you know, like you said, the cost curve is there. Uh, and we'll talk, I know, in a minute about some of the commodities and some of the issues there. But it takes a long time. You've got a lot of existing plants that would have to be, uh, you know, retired before the end of life. Uh, but as we still talk about uh, the petroleum side, in those exact same forecasts, oil drops only 2%. It currently provides 29% of uh, global energy, and it only drops to 27%. So we're in a world where the suppliers of uh, the stuff have cut back on trying to find it and trying to develop it, but it's still forecast to be a major source of energy. And this is really the crux of it. We have seen, and everybody has experienced, I probably don't need to tell anybody listening to this, just how big of an impact energy can be on total inflation. It only makes up between 6 and 10% of the overall consumer basket. Uh, but over the past two years, roughly, it contributed one-third of the inflation that we're feeling right now. Uh, so it is something that we're going to need. It's something that the suppliers have cut back on, and we know that it hits inflation pretty hard, Tony. I think what I'm hearing is that there are two things that are coming together to cause energy to be inflationary over the next decade, two decades, et cetera. One is that 
we are not investing, we being the industry is not really investing enough in order to even maintain our current output at the current cost on our inflation-adjusted basis, much less growing the current output of hydrocarbons. And then couple that with the fact that it's going to take a long time to build the green infrastructure that's going to replace the output of hydrocarbons. And I guess a third factor would have to be that the overall aggregate energy usage of the world is growing. It's not staying flat. So you put those three components together and we don't have enough energy going forward because hydrocarbons are coming off faster than they need to be replaced by green energy sources given the growing appetite for energy. And therefore, supply demand, cost of energy is going to go up and that's inflationary. Yeah. And then the last bit that we talk about are the um, impacts on commodities. You know, the world has been so focused on petroleum for, for more than, uh, than 100 years. We all know Saudi Arabia, we're all accustomed to talking about oil. We are less accustomed to talking about uh, things like graphite, aluminum, copper, nickel, lithium, cobalt. These are all the kind of things that uh, even if we could agree upon it and everybody wanted to put all of our resources into uh, developing these new sources of energy and renewable sources, those are the things that are going to become ever more important to make solar panels, to make uh, EVs. So an electric vehicle uses about 400 pounds more of aluminum and 150 pounds more of copper than a standard uh, uh, internal combustion engine automobile that we have now. And even a slower transition under current policies, which by a lot of people's reckoning is not even fast enough, we've got forecasts for the demand of, of these uh, commodities and the prices of these commodities to move, uh, to move significantly higher. The IMF is, pro is projecting you know, triple-digit percentage growth in the cost of some of those things, and copper up by 60%. So that's going to be challenged too. This tenuous transition is all about moving from one uh, supply-demand issue to another supply-demand issue. So let's bring it all together. So we have a shortage of workers and a shortage of, call it inspired workers, or engaged workers. We have a shortage of, or a growing shortage of supplemental labor from China. We have a shortage of energy, yet at the same time, we have a significant headwind from a fiscal standpoint. Over the last few years, we spent $4.5 trillion on stimulus, putting cash into people's pockets and companies' pockets and different kinds of programs to support banks and the economy. And we have a more restrictive monetary environment, which has slowed down things pretty radically um, in the Fed raising interest rates. You put all that into the soup, where does that bring the inflation equation to, let's say, by the middle of next year? We're expecting inflation to decelerate, as it has been. Uh, we expect it to come down to about 3% uh, in the middle of next year. Uh, of course, the Fed's target is 2% over time. And it could even dip a little bit lower than the 3%. But the fundamental thrust of, of all of this is not just at that month over month and the year over year. It's that these things are going to combine to make it much more challenging for inflation to remain at 3% or even to move down to uh, the Fed's target with all of these, these impacts, Tony. So just to review, I think this is really important. We have a very strong consumer, but a weakening consumer due to the fact that they're spending through all the money that they had saved during the pandemic. They're now on credit cards. Obviously, there's limits to how much, um, especially in a higher interest rate environment, people can carry on their credit cards. So 
with all that happening, we do expect the consumer to start to really subside getting into next year. Consumers have been very focused on goods. Now they're on services, so we're seeing the prices for goods roll over, even deflating in many cases. Something similar, maybe not as acute, will start to happen on the services side. That'll start to bring prices down really quickly, but they'll get stuck. They'll get stuck around that 3% level because we have these three very strong structural inflationary forces that are going to be really hard to combat the tight labor markets, the lack of cheap supplemental labor, and the lack of cheap energy all coming together to keep inflation higher. So, Megan, what does that mean for, we'll come back to next year in a moment, but what does that mean for investors over the next three to five years, let's say? I think that's a great question. And what we saw in the post-global financial crisis era of ultra-low interest rates, extremely accommodative monetary policy, was that investors were incentivized to take on risk. Um, Savers were essentially punished. And there was really one place to go in the market, and that was you know, richly valued, growthier stocks. So, so stocks that you know, trade at a premium, but have these lofty earnings growth expectations way out in the future. Now, if we're looking at a slightly higher inflation environment, a slightly higher interest rate environment, and monetary policy that's not likely to go back to those um, ultra-accommodative ways, we're probably looking at really an environment where diversification starts to work again, both at the asset class level and also within equities. So, Tony, as you pointed out, fixed income's looking more attractive. A stock bond uh, diversified portfolio is likely to maybe not generate a higher return uh, overall, but probably for those investors looking for income and yield, probably a better return overall over a, a medium time frame. And then within equities too, I think that there's a place for somewhere in the middle between the high growth and deep value factors or, or styles, if you will technology is is going to continue to power our economy and be the place of innovation. And if you're not looking at interest rates continuing to move up at the pace that they have, I think growth can start to work again. But probably not those more speculative parts of the market where we really saw investors reaching for yield or taking on too much risk because um, the the cost of capital was just so low. So we're really looking at, you know, liking growth, but also keeping an eye on valuations. So when we think about next year, probably our most likely scenario is that the Fed raises rates to over 5%, Fed funds rates, that sort of breaks the back of the consumer to some degree. And we have a mild recession, not millions of job losses, but you know some job losses, maybe a million or so. And in that environment, you would typically think that the equity market would go back down and retest the lows that we saw earlier this year. If that is the outcome from an economic standpoint, which is consensus right now, do you think that the equity market would in fact do that? Or um, why is the equity market above 4,000 now on the S&P? given that outlook that that seems to be pretty pervasive in the financial community? Well, if you look historically at data and past cycles, and and we do a lot of analysis on what's happened in prior cycles, we've seen the lows so far for the market in September. Atlanta Fed GDP now is estimating about 2.8% 
for uh, fourth quarter GDP. So let's just assume we're not in a recession right now. Yeah, that's, that's healthy. Right, exactly. That's a very robust pace of growth. So, you know, absent falling off a cliff in the first quarter, maybe it is a, an end of first quarter, second quarter type of, of slowdown. It would be very unusual for the market to have bottomed six months ahead of the onset of a recession. Typically, you look at the market to bottom, in some cases, immediately before the recession starts, in most cases, um, actually in the early innings of the recession. So if we're not there yet, I think that's one reason to suggest that maybe we need to see uh, a little bit more weakness in the market, perhaps around the next earnings season. But on the other hand, if we are right, and this is a mild recession, unlike the ones that we've seen over the past three cycles, and you're talking about the economy coming out of it and the Fed even being in a position to start cutting rates at the end of 2023, it's very possible that the market looks through this and we don't have to see um, a retest of the lows that we saw in September. Clearly, this is a Fed that, even though it has a dual mandate, has been very concerned about the third rail of economic growth. And so I think the market is seeing that, and the market's appreciating that, and the market feels that even though the Fed may go up above 5%, it's going to come right back down if it needs to in order to tame the recession. So given that uncertainty, our position today being pretty neutral across equities until we get better visibility into how the market is going to react to a assumed recession at this point is really the prudent approach. So with that, I want to ask you, Megan, a last question, which is, given our most likely scenario, which is this recession, are there any specific investments that you would be counseling that clients overweight in their portfolios today? Well, we do a lot of work um, within the factor space. And what our factor work is telling us is that valuations for growth stocks are attractive relative to history. And a slower or a below trend economic growth next year would suggest investors should seek out those companies generating their own organic growth. Um, so we have a slight tilt uh, to growth in the portfolio um, within sectors. A lot of the um, principles that Luke talked about related to energy um, are leading us to remain favorable on the energy space, so having an overweight there in portfolios. And uh, staying, again, staying, staying diversified, looking for companies that are profitable. Thank you so much, Megan. It's critical to appreciate that while inflation is going to come down as the consumer slows down, there are some very critical structural forces here in labor, China, and energy that are going to cause inflation to remain elevated compared to where we were over the last decade and a half, but not necessarily elevated to obscene levels, um, to structurally problematic levels. Elevated around 3%, we think, um, maybe 3.5%, um, but probably 3% on average over the next half decade, which is about 1% above the Fed's target. And those are levels that are very consistent with strong returns for the overall portfolio. There, there are levels where we can have a full allocation to bonds, whereas we've been underweight bonds um, for many years. Um, we can move back to a full allocation on bonds, probably not an overweight, though, and that we can have a full allocation to equities um, to complement the full allocation to bonds. Because if we look historically at what we call the equity risk premium, which is the expected return for equities for the risk that we're taking, in an environment where interest rates are around, let's call it three to four percent on the on the ten year, maybe even a little bit lower than that. Frankly, equities can perform quite well, and so diversification is going to really be 
the friend of the long-term investor. So I want to thank Luke, Megan, and Rhea for being here today. It was a really terrific conversation. Thank you, Tony. Thank you. Thank you. And for the, our entire Capital Market Forecast Report, you can look on WilmingtonTrust.com and download the PDF in all its glory with all its footnotes and, um, and have a read. Um, I think it's really a terrific, a terrific piece of research. So thank you all so much for listening. This podcast is for educational purposes only and is not intended as an offer or solicitation for the sale of any financial product or service or recommendation or determination that any investment strategy is suitable for a specific investor. Investors should seek financial advice regarding the suitability of any investment strategy based on the investor's objectives, financial situation, and particular needs. The information on Wilmington Trust's capital considerations with Tony Roth has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy and completeness are not guaranteed. The opinions, estimates, and projections constitute the judgment of Wilmington Trust as of the date of this podcast and are subject to change without notice. The opinions of any guest on the Capital Considerations podcast who are not employed by Wilmington Trust or M&T Bank are their own and do not necessarily represent those of M&T Bank Corporate or any of its affiliates. Wilmington Trust is not authorized to and does not provide legal or tax advice. Our advice and recommendations provided to you is illustrative only and subject to the opinions and advice of your own attorney, tax advisor, or other professional advisor. Diversification does not ensure a profit or guarantee against a loss. There is no assurance that any investment strategy will be successful. Past performance cannot guarantee future results. Investing involves a risk and you may incur a profit or a loss. Any reference to company names mentioned in the podcast should not be constructed as investment advice or investment recommendations of those companies. Third-party trademarks and brands are the property of their respective owners. Third parties referenced herein are independent companies and are not affiliated with M&T Bank or Wilmington Trust. Listing them does not suggest a recommendation or endorsement by Wilmington Trust. Private market investments are only available to investors that meet the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission's definition of qualified purchaser and accredited investor. Facts and views presented in this report have not been reviewed by and may not reflect information known to professionals in other business areas of Wilmington Trust or M&T Bank and may provide or seek to provide financial services to entities referred to in this report. M&T Bank and Wilmington Trust have established information barriers between their various business groups. As a result, M&T Bank and Wilmington Trust do not disclose certain client relationships or compensation received from such entities in their reports. Investment products are not insured by the FDIC or any other governmental agency, are not deposits of or other obligations of or guaranteed by Wilmington Trust, M&T Bank, or any other bank or entity, and are subject to risks including a possible loss of the principal amount invested. Wilmington Trust is a registered service mark used in connection with various fiduciary and non-fiduciary services offered by certain subsidiaries of M&T Bank Corporation, including, but not limited to, Manufacturers and Traders Trust Company, M&T Bank, Wilmington Trust Company, WTC, operating in Delaware only, Wilmington Trust NA, WTNA, Wilmington Trust Investment Advisors, Inc., WTIA, 
Wilmington Funds Management Corporation, WFMC, and Wilmington Trust Investment Management, LLC, WTIM. Such services include trustee, custodial, agency, investment management, and other services. International corporate and institutional services are offered through M&T Bank Corporation's international subsidiaries. Loans, credit cards, retail and business deposits, and other businesses and personal banking services and products are offered by M&T Bank, member FDIC. Copyright 2022 M&T Bank and its affiliates and subsidiaries, all rights reserved.